This podcast, The Two Mats, is sponsored as ever by the New European Newspaper. And we've got a very special subscription offer for you, a new one, where you can get a free bollocks to Brexit passport cover. That's right, you heard that right, folks. It's a burgundy, like vegan leather, beautifully designed passport cover. Pleather. To, to have pleather, that's what, that's what they call it, isn't it? Pleather. To hide your um, new British blue. The shame of the, the blue shame, The shame passport. of the blue passport. And you can get your free bollocks to Brexit passport cover free with a subscription to the New European from just £1 a week. So to take this fantastic offer, and trust me, if you like this podcast, you will absolutely love the New European, go to theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash two mats. That's the number two, M-A-T-T-S, and there's a link in the show notes. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes. Until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, snowflakes. Welcome back to the New European podcast with me, Eleanor Longman-Rood, a journalist at the New European. My co-hosts, Steve Anglesey and Matt Withers, are away this week, so I will be flying solo on this episode. Interestingly, the last time our editor Steve was away, Liz Truss became Prime Minister, and the time before that, Boris Johnson resigned. So, who knows what state of affairs British politics will be in upon his return. Coming up, my colleague and new European journalist Suna Erden will be joining us to discuss her recent interview with Caroline Lucas, which happened to occur the same day Liz Truss resigned, and Rishi Sunak's dithering over his decision to go to COP27. I'll be discussing another sane week in Westminster as Matt Hancock is heading to the jungle to join I'm a Celebrity contestants, not a sentence I thought I'd be saying last week. And, of course, more malignant ministers, bogus backbenchers and poisonous pundits will go into our hall of shame. Before that, if you enjoy what we do at The New European, there really is no better way to support us than to subscribe. To make that decision easier for you, here's a fantastic offer for podcast listeners. New subscribers can get a year's digital subscription for just £1 a week, or you can buy a year's subscription to the print and digital package for just £2 a week. You'll have unlimited digital access and our award-winning newspaper will be delivered to your door every week for a year. Wow! To take advantage of this brilliant exclusive offer and join our growing community of avid readers, subscribe at www.theneweuropean.co.uk forward slash TNE podcast. Did you miss the word U-turn? I know I did. Well, dear listeners and readers alike, fear not, it's back. This is the news that Prime Minister Rishi Sunak will now indeed be heading to COP27 on Sunday after previously choosing not to attend the conference in Egypt, citing reasons that they were too busy preparing for the 17th of November budget. Many ministers and environmental groups called this a failure, 
and said that it brought into question government commitments to prioritise net zero and tackle the climate crisis. With the news that he is now to attend, maybe we can all rest easy, that the budget is done, dusted and all ready, wrapped up neatly in a bow, like an early Christmas present to the general public. Although, perhaps this first decision was to be expected. After all, it's not a big political summit. No, those aren't my words, but those of our Environment Secretary, Therese Coffey, who also called the conference just a gathering of people in Egypt. When interviewed earlier this week about her plans for COP27, and indeed the global crisis, she casually shrugged that she'd attend for a few days, but her plans didn't really seem too sure yet. And she said this with the same sort of certainty and enthusiasm that you have when someone invites you to plans that you don't really want to go to. And in fact, you know that you'll cancel before they come to fruition anyway. But she still has some vital pieces of advice for us that come from her own daily routines and how we can help the global crisis and our actions. She suggests having permanent cups and cups that we can reuse and recycle. Groundbreaking. I'm sure if you head to the Conservative Party shop, there will be a huge range of permanent cups with exciting logos and slogans on them. And then once you have them, we can all raise a glass and cheers to Coffee's promising time ahead as the Environment Secretary. Also this week... I thought the strangest headline I would read this week would be Heidi Klum wriggles onto the red carpet as giant worm in reference to the model's infamous Halloween costumes, this year being no exception. But no, the former health secretary is following in Nadine Dory's footsteps and has announced that he'll be taking part in the hit ITV reality show. It's fair to say it's not gone down overly well. Hancock's local conservative association is not impressed to say the least. Andy Drummond, deputy chairman of the Suffolk Conservative Association, told PA, I'm looking forward to him eating a kangaroo's penis. Quote me. You can quote me on that. Indeed, Andy, we have. A mob of red kangaroos. This male is a long way down in the group's hierarchy. If he wants to have young, he's going to have to take on this guy. Of course there's people who um, have been uh, yearning to have uh, some physical contact. You should do that carefully. But more on that later. Joining me now on the podcast is the new European journalist Suna Erdem, who recently interviewed Caroline Lucas, former Green Party leader and representative for Brighton Pavilion. And we'll now discuss this as well as all things COP27, the climate crisis and the government's response to this. Welcome back to the podcast, Suna. Thank you, Ellie. Now, before we get started, I just want to ask you about something that I've mentioned previously. Matt Hancock and I'm a Celebrity. Just briefly, what are your thoughts on this decision and Hancock's celebrityhood aspirations? I've been trying really hard not to have any thoughts on this, actually, because it's all a bit depressing. But um, it looks really desperate on his part. Um, I mean, imagine that he will be picked up to do all the worst trials and either he'll be kicked out early or he'll be kept on so he can suffer some more. Um, I can't imagine what he'll get that's, that's good for him, really, because I mean, I think he, politicians aren't really popular on this, are they? And um, and they always end up looking even worse. And um, he clearly thinks he's much higher in everyone's esteem than he really is. So, you know, he's got a book coming out, but really. So I'm not sure it's going to be much of a success. And then there's, of course, there's a taking time off issue. Um so I'm not I'm not sure what he gets up to of any value in Parliament at the moment. But I mean, he's been paid to be an MP and work with 
them and represent them. So he won't be doing that for a while. And um, also the most important thing is the, you know, the, the COVID inquiry and the fact that he's not going to be available or you know, when they're investigating something which he thinks he probably came out with really well and he saved us from all these, from COVID. But actually, you know, it was a pretty bad job um, from sacrificing the care homes and the messy lockdown strategy and the dodgy COVID contracts. I mean, it doesn't come him in glory, even though he's not completely in charge of this. So I think it's just pretty irresponsible. But I mean, he's not going to win from this, I shouldn't imagine. No. Well, it depends on what you mean by win, because he says he wants to engage with voters. And I'm sure he'll come out top of, you know, each each time they've got to ring in and vote. But that means he's got to go and do a trial. So it depends on what sort of voting he wants to engage with, I guess. Um, yeah, yeah, I expect he's going to be eating something pretty horrible most of the time until they get fed up and chuck him out. So if he thinks that's a win, good luck to him. Exactly. Well, it's the quote, the viral quote that's been going round and round from Andrew, uh, Andy Drummond saying, you know, I look forward to him eating a kangaroo penis. So a sentence we didn't think we were engaging with this time last week. But um, on to more sort of expected issues that we thought we'd be talking about. You recently interviewed Caroline Lucas. Can you tell us firstly about the atmosphere on that day? Because as it turned out, and, you know, they say politics has got a sense of humour, that you, and as you were filling us all in over WhatsApp, it turned out to be the day that Liz Truss resigned. So what was, you know, as you were waiting to do the interview, what was the uh, the atmosphere like? Well, it was a bit bizarre. I mean, I was in Port Cullet's house, which isn't actually Parliament proper, so it wasn't the excitement or whatever that was there. But um, there were a lot of grumpy people going backwards and forwards and sort of in a bit of a hurry. And then um, I was waiting to meet Caroline Lucas, and she had this um, important environmental environment-related meeting later that afternoon. And the venue had been changed from Brighton to London because of this. So when I got there, um, we were expecting to meet her, an aide came down instead and said that this meeting had been cancelled and she was trying to find out why. And um, she would be down a bit later. And so I was joking, well, is this the end of Liz Trust then? Is she resigning? And he said, yes, probably, which is a bit surprised to hear <laughs> then. Um, because yeah, we knew she was going to go, but not quite that quickly. So it was just a bit bizarre. So I was talking to um, Caroline Lucas then about you know, government policy, but of course it was going to be another government. I mean, in the end, I said, which is something I, I kind of believe in a way that, well, she should be the next prime minister really, because the biggest problem is climate. And she's the only one who seems to know anything about it or want to do anything about it. And yet there's this revolving door of um, MPs that uh, are not doing pulling their weight on it at all. So, yeah, it was it was a bit odd. I didn't think that would be happening. And then when I went up away after the meeting and looked on my phone, then she'd gone. She'd gone. Well, we had the exact, as we've mentioned on this podcast, we had the same thing where I think eight minutes or so it was after recording, she then resigned. We're like, oh, OK, well, everything that we've said on this episode is now, in, you know, aged <laughs> yeah. exceptionally, exceptionally well. Um, you mentioned sort of a revolving door of leaders. Obviously, since that that interview, we knew have a new prime minister, one who at first opted not to not to go to COP twenty seven. So, you know, what were what were Caroline's remarks on on this and COP twenty seven when you spoke to her? <laughs> well, you can imagine um, she thought it was pretty disgraceful, and especially in the wake of all those reports that were being issued at the time and are still being issued by the United, by the United Nations and other organisations ahead of COP27, which are showing just how dire the situation is. You know, I mean, we're going to miss the 1.5% above industrial levels target, which would have was a target to make sure we don't have the worst catastrophe from climate change. And so, you know, we're leading towards, we're heading towards 2.8 degrees um, at the end of this century, which is terrible. I mean, it's you know, it could be, as I say, catastrophic is the word that keeps coming out, but that's kind of what it is. You know, Europe's heating up 
I think twice as fast as the global average. Glaciers are melting faster than we thought. We're reaching tipping points beyond which some, you know, some of the predicted changes could trigger something even worse and even more unpredictable than in what was already thought of as pretty bad. So all of this, despite um, decades of warning that this will happen. So, you know, in this environment, as I said, the only Green MP in Parliament, she's got all that at her fingertips anyway. And um, so to see that he he's the country's leader, the country's leader doesn't seem to understand how important this is and sort of says he's got better things to do. It was really frustrating. I mean, and her words, you know, she sort of told me it was maddening and frustrating to have sit there and have and watch in the sidelines as the government fiddles and Rome burns and you know how to put it out. So these are my her words to me. Um, if yet more evidence were needed, the UN's latest reports confirm not just that we're in the midst of a climate emergency, but that we're staring a cat catastrophe in the face. And she said, whilst our new PM has chosen to look the other way by refusing to attend COP27, real climate leaders across our global and local communities are doubling down on the need to keep fossil fuels in the ground, urgently transform our economies and secure a just transition for the livable future. So, you know, not very impressed. And um, then you know, when he U-turned later, she was pleased about what she called his screeching U-turn, but it was still, in her words, an embarrassing misstep. And um, she continues to think that he's no climate leader. Mm. And you mentioned, you know, that that word there, U-turn, which once mm. again is we had a slight break from it, but it's now back again in our in our <laughs> sort of daily vocabulary. And you mentioned Caroline's response to this. So, you know, what were you firstly, were you surprised at his decision to to basically reverse his decision and, and now attend the conference? Um, I mean, not entirely. Uh, he was already prevaricating several days ago, days before, and so we knew it could be on the cards. Um, I mean, I expect he didn't think that going to not going to COP would have caused such a stir, which I guess shows how sort of disconnected his thinking is. I mean, I expect he thought he'd look diligent and self-sacrificing by, you know, staying up late and doing his homework rather than going on a trip. But and it backfired, I think, because he didn't realise climate change is it's as if he didn't realise climate change was the biggest problem facing humanity, as many others did. And I mean, you know, it's I was horrified that he wasn't going to go in the first place because um, having hosted COP26 in Glasgow, you know, we the UK still actually holds the COP presidency. It's Alok Sharma who was demoted from um, the cabinet. You know, so it looked incredibly bad for the head of the UK government not to be there. And I'm glad he's going, but it's always already caused damage in the messaging. And it sort of shows how important the UK thinks tackling climate change is. And I mean, you do have tackling climate change, sorry. And you do have people criticizing big union meetings like this for just being a talking shop full of virtue signaling politicians. And to an extent, yes, I mean, you know, emissions of Caradon rising through all all of these cops you know they make pledges it doesn't happen and I mean you know, it's the view of Greta Thunberg she's not going this time but I mean, the point is from the point of view of a leader you still have to go I mean that's a symbolism you know not going looks pretty bad not just for them but for the whole climate movement I know it's not a joke this is you know projections are really bad so how can you tell people that these things might happen and you've got to change your behavior and lifestyles um if then you don't even bother to turn up to, to, uh, to a conference. So I think, you know, I'm not surprised eventually he has to, had to go and ch change his mind, but I mean, he has done a lot of damage and, um, you know, <laughs> it's just not very, it's just depressing, isn't it really? I know. Well, I suppose the, the, the 
defense or the reasoning that was cited was that they had to spend time, you know, for November 17th, prepping, prepping the budget, making sure everything was in order in terms of, you know, domestically, the focus on the on the economy and everything. So I suppose that now that he's going, we can all assume and rest easy that the budget is all, you know, done and dusted. And it's going to be like a bit of an early Christmas present for all of us or maybe answer B. Um, Why do you so and then secondly, why do you think and you've mentioned a lot about, you know, symbolism and that he had to go. But do you think I see you mentioned this change of heart, so to speak. But why do you think it came about? Was it sort of internal pressure or the response from the public, from the press? Why? What do you think caused this U-turn? Well, I mean, you know, he suddenly found time in his schedule. Come on. <laughs> I mean, um, so I think, I mean, Boris Johnson, I mean, you know, I can't believe I'm being grateful for Boris Johnson, but when he threatened to go, or he's going, I think, um, no doubt because of some kind of vanity, um, I can't imagine Sunak thought it would be a good idea for him to be glad handling Macron and Biden and, um, you know, <laughs> presenting himself to all the state on the stage. If um, he sat at Downing Street and was looking over Jeremy Hunt's shoulder and his spreadsheets of economic doom. So I think it it couldn't have, you know, maybe it was Boris that pushed him. It was certainly very soon afterwards. But obviously there was also considerable pressure from within the parliament, um, even some, some of his own MPs. There was a lot of international criticism as well. I mean, the Egyptian government, you know, there was disappointment. And who knows, maybe even, even Sunak's own daughters, because he keeps, says they keep pressing him on the environment. So, you know, I mean, I think it's the public pressure, public, for the first time, the public are now putting climate in the top three of their concerns. And I think the government for such a long time has been keen on appeasing the same sort of right wing outliers on Brexit or migration or whatever, and also on climate, I think they sort of forget that the public and the interests of the country are in terms of focusing very hard on climate change. Mm, perhaps an issue of sort of always focusing on the electorate and, you know, whenever that next general election, as we've discussed before on this podcast, may be sort of thinking ahead to, like you say, it's in the top sort of three three issues for voters now. Um, and what do you, you know, as we sort of hit Sunday, Sunday onwards, what do you think we can expect to see from... Sunak and what sort of things he's going to you know be saying or wanting to talk about or you know anything like that and indeed once the conference finishes the, this crisis is far you know going to be far from over once it is finished so what do you think we're going to then see from him in terms of climate policies throughout his tenure of, of number 10 onwards yeah um however long that's going to yeah be. I mean he can't be worse than trust he cannot be worse than her so she's sort of got even the RSPB out up in arms fighting the government with her sort of climate wrecking measures so by that measure he will be better he will succeed on those particular terms he's already reinstated the ban on fracking and their hopes that he'll retain the farming subsidies for green practices that was the only Brexit benefit I think um, such as rewilding and things that Trust was threatening to take away, and which is actually what got her into trouble with all the nature charities. She talked about banning solar farms because they were ugly and were taking up good farmland, which is not actually true, um, certainly in terms of the, the type of farmland and the amount. Um, so and his announcement when he said he was going to COP was positive in the sense that he said there was no long-term prosperity without action on climate change or energy security without investment in renewables. So you hope that he's going to do something to address that. Some green campaigners have said that, unlike trust, he does grasp a brief quickly and listens to advice, which is quite basic, you think, for a prime minister, but you know that's gotta be better than it was. But 
On the other hand, everything at the moment is supposed to be under review because of the financial situation. Um, and he's, you get the feeling that he's always looked at climate more through the prism of cost rather than existential, existential needs. So what will come out of that? We don't, we don't know yet, obviously. Um, is he going to say that certain measures are not affordable? Um, that's an argument that um, you know, Caroline Lucas has very strongly pushed back on because, of course, she says you can't, there's no economy in a dead planet. And she also points out to various measures saying that actually the amount of money required to combat climate change is uh, like two to three percent of GDP a year for a while, which is not very much in the scheme of things. And it's less um, than Brexit has cost us, as far as I can tell. But he might not necessarily see those arguments. So who knows? Um, he's already made some really bad decisions. Um, he's kicked Alok Sharma, who, as I said, is COP president, the current COP president, um, out of cabinet. Um, and he didn't have him in parliament um, earlier this week to answer questions on COP26, which was a terrible move. Um, he also demoted his climate minister, um, Graham Stewart, who's not in cabinet either. Um, whereas, you know, climate change is affecting and will affect everything from the economy to transport, to health, to aid, to the current energy crisis and the measures, you know. So deliberately excluding them from the place where this is discussed is really, really short-sighted. And then you've got his choice of environment secretary, Therese Coffey, who when she left health or the health sector were cheering. Um, and she really doesn't seem to grasp this issue. I mean, she said in a very early interview when she was asked about what her personal contribution was to combating climate change, she was, um, she ummed and ahed and then said sort of hesitantly that she was using or maybe even thinking about starting again to use reusable cups. Um, and that was all she came up with. So, you know, there've been pretty bad decisions all the way so far. We've only been here for a few days. And I mean, then you've got just now the government's missed the date when it was supposed to meet key targets to tackle um, the water and air pollution and also to sort of halt the decline in nature, which is just ongoing. And um, to the extent that the head of the Office for Environmental Protection, Dame Glynis Stacey, she's criticised coffee already. She's only been in the job for a few days and she said there was going to be an investigation and possible action against her. These are important parts of the government's environmental act, environment act. So I mean, it's not really good. I mean, she hasn't given a new date for when she might meet these targets. And then you've got the UK you know, missed a deadline in September to provide $288 million to the Green Climate Fund. That's dedicated to helping developing countries you know, adapt and mitigate climate effects of climate change. And um, he was criticised internationally for missing these deadlines, the UK was. And I mean, you know, these are helping developing countries that are suffering most from the climate change that is predominantly created by the richer countries. So it's it just looks appalling on all levels. So, I mean, you know, hopefully Sunak will get some kind of epiphany in Cairo is all I'm hoping for. You're hoping for an, an epiphany in Cairo. It's always yeah. a good thing to <laughs> hope for. Um, I know you mean- It's a moment, but it's the wrong country. Yeah. Coffee's, um her remarks are in that interview. I know the one I spoke about it earlier, the one you're talking about. And she also then said she was going to, uh, like you say, thinking about or start using or is using permanent cups. Yeah. Um, and um, she said that the COP27 was, it was simply a gathering of people in Egypt, which is an interesting description. Yeah. I'm sure that's on the website. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Um, yes. We just don't seem to have a clue. And it's really depressing that these are the people in charge. Well, someone who does have a clue and is, you know, it's no surprise that he's 
exceptionally passionate about the climate emergency is King Charles, which is quite an interesting aspect of all of this that's been over the narrative of whether he was going to attend, wanted to attend, isn't going to attend. We now know that he's he's not. Downing Street is left in place that request that Liz Trust um, left for the King not to attend. What are your what are your thoughts on this, Suna? Um, well, I, apparently he might be free to go now, but he can't because there isn't enough time for ah. security arrangements. So it's been such a saga going backwards and forwards that you can't quite tell what's going to happen. But I think, you know, I think the statement now is, well, he could have gone, but he can't because it's too late. So who knows? I mean, I think it's it's ludicrous. You know, he's um, he's known as the Green King. <laughs> He made a good speech at COP26. He's been doing these things, you know, environmental campaigning since before Sunak certainly was born, I'm sure. Um, he's a, he's a longtime environmentalist. He's been in, he's been knowledgeable about and campaigning on these issues before so many people weren't interested. He's been laughed at about it and he knows what he's talking about. So I think to keep from him from this conference was a terrible decision, again, for a number of reasons, because it's awful messaging, you know, here we've got a king who knows what he's talking about, so we're not going to send him. Um, and he could have made, you know, a difference. It's a waste. It's not, it was a waste of a great opportunity. Also from the point of view of um, the UK signalling, you know, intent in climate, because you know, from Boris Johnson onwards, they're all very keen on um, saying that we're world leaders um, in climate as we are in absolutely everything else. Well, they could make a bit of an effort to try and reach that goal on climate and not sending the king to cop isn't the way to do that did you um did i catch you slipping into a bit of a boris johnson impression there sooner when you said world leaders it's definitely, <laughs> it definitely or maybe that's just my brain that's, you know? that that was um, i had my you know inverted commas around that firmly yes i mean world leading it's it's so um it's quite ridiculous you know this is what um struggling leaders in developing countries tell their people it is not what happens <laughs> in one of the richest countries in the world that has a sort of supposed to have a critical press and you know supposed to sort of set, isn't isn't supposed to be quite so insecure it's it's, it's ridiculous so I don't want to dwell on that really. <laughs> now one thing that has been coming up in the media and a recurring theme that we've spoken about in our meetings is on climate change obviously the, the just stop oil protests and almost what what happens when and what actions are taken when people feel that politicians just aren't listening. And the big irony of this, as we've discussed, is that the narrative moves to the protests and the specific actions behind the protests, rather than the topic that, the, you know, and the issue that they want us to actually talk about, the climate crisis and global warming and the climate emergency, the very issue that they're desperate for us to talk about. Why is that the case that it sort of actually results in the narrative shifting to, you know, things like orange paint being thrown everywhere, soup being thrown on on paintings in museums and things like that, rather than actually like, oh, okay, maybe we should stop and actually talk about what's driven these protesters to do these things. Why is that the case? Um, well, I think it's all down. I mean, the re down to the reasons of the protest. You know, the narrative is this is actually the politicians don't listen very much on this issue full stop because it's too difficult it's too costly it's not as immediate as their short-term plans and so emissions are going up and up and up despite fit more than 50 years of warnings um and so it's you know then you've got scientists and activists warning and doing polite protests putting out reports and no one takes any notice of them and so they're becoming desperate i mean i've spoken to quite a few who said well this isn't really what we want to do this isn't our dream um, event 
to disrupt you, to stop you going to work, to throw things, throw paint or on, on valuable things. But it's the number of protests we've done that have been ignored and it's getting too late to be ignored. So we feel that we have to do something. And this is we're grasping at straws, really. So the reason we hear about these protests and not about the polite ones is because they anger people. Um, and when they anger people then the press decide that this is actually worth um, covering. So, of course, then whenever they do these protests, they're sort of finding their way anyway. But whenever they do something like this, there's the immediate attack. Um, you know, first of all, the the, the highlight of the, the one of the most high profile, let's say, of the, the recent protests was that tomato soup thrown on the Van Gogh sunflowers in the National Gallery. And um columnists went mad it's like you can't destroy valuable for art for climate you're you know this is bad for your image um and they, that carried on even after it was clear that the protesters had chosen a painting that was protected by glass um and then the sort of callback was well climate's more important than art however important art is and so it became this silly argument about what was more important um so and people are angry because you know they they see something they like and it's they think it's being destroyed um, and they don't see what's it's got to do with climate or they can't get to work and um, that's annoying. They can't get their trains. They can't do things they want to do. Um, so they get very angry um, and that creates the narrative. But, um, you know, it's so initially it doesn't get talked about very much at all. It is partly the press framing and people don't like protest. I think generally, unless you're actually protesting, whatever the reason um, which is a problem. And then one other problem is that, of course, if this narrative becomes um, entrenched that these people are protesting and what they're doing is so awful that we're not going to think about what they are um, protesting about, then people become more supportive of the um, the tightening of the government, the, the legal tightening around protest that is happening at the moment, that it is becoming more acceptable when actually in a democratic country like the UK, it shouldn't be so um, they shouldn't be doing that. You know, no, you mustn't be noisy. They're going to give you an ankle tag if you go on any protest whatsoever. You know, these things should be talked about. So in a sense, it, it does drive the narrative in the wrong way. But sometimes it um, also, given time, it changes. So when you're talking about it, then slowly people start to talk about what they're doing. So it doesn't always work. It's always an experiment. They don't really know what works. But um, it starts off bad because people are inconvenienced. But I think when they have a time to think about it, it doesn't always continue like this. And you mentioned, you know, our part of being British that we don't particularly like protests unless you are, as you mentioned, unless you're taking part in them. And this afternoon you were you were speaking with a professor who both studied protests and also took part in, in climate protests. What did he what did he have to say on on this issue as someone, you know, who on the ground, so to speak? Um, so I was speaking to um, Colin Davis from uh, the University of Bristol, um, who's a psychology professor, but also he's been on protests. And it was it was really interesting. Um, he's done lots of some ex psychological experiments on them. So, I mean, yes, there is that that almost very, every time there is a protest, there's a backlash. But the jury's still out on what that means. So he's um, he's done some experiments, for instance, sort of with the assumption that the framing of a protest is negative in the media he's um done some experiments by showing the framing is very negative and then not quite so negative and asking people how they feel about it about the cause and um what he's found is actually it doesn't make that much difference you think it does but it doesn't because of course if you are concerned about the climate you might not want um orange paint on mi5 building but 
you're not going to not be uncon- not be concerned by the climate afterwards. You, know, you remain, your concern remains. If you're against, you know, if a climate change denier or delayer, as they call them now, who you know, can't deny it, but one of doesn't think they need to do much about it, you're probably not going to be pulled on side either. Um, the ones in the middle, it's it's not very clear. Um, he personally has done a number of protests. I mean, once he was, um, I think in 2019, he was um, arrested and actually the judge said, I have to, you know, I have to find against you, but I really want you to succeed. And he also said that we judges share out these climate cases because it's too depressing because we actually support you, which is interesting. You know, mm. the person who was turning around. And um, he also, another thing he spoke about from his personal protest experience was that he was on a, on that pink boat that was on Oxford Circus mm. years ago. And he said, you know, they were they were doing it, they did, they stayed there overnight and it was awful and you know um, unpleasant. And then right about six o'clock in the morning, he said someone came and started shouting at them and swearing at them, who because he couldn't go to work because the bus that takes him to work couldn't go through Oxford Street. So he couldn't get there and he was really angry and he wanted them to know how angry he was. And then he apparently he walked off and one of the protesters caught up with him and spoke to him about why they were protesting but then he went off and um the the person who spoke to him said well I don't think it made that much difference but apparently 45 minutes later he came back and said I've been thinking about this I think you're right I'm actually not going to go to work today I'm going to stay here and hang out with you and see what I can do to help which was you know for a protester this is an incredible experience and I don't know how much it happens but mm. I've spoken to other um I spoke to someone from Scientist Rebellion in Germany who says you know yes we do get a lot of negative but you know quite a lot of people also come and and um agree with us someone at Just Stop Oil who was protesting outside um, Westminster said the same so it doesn't always backfire it does you can catch some people and even in this case someone who was very angry with them if you look at the history of it, we were discussing this as well, sort of watch historical protests work. And it's always because you can't isolate every element, you don't know. So some people will say there was a there's an article, for instance, against the just stop oil people who said, stop it, you're not suffragettes, um, which is a different argument. I mean, suffragettes, we're talking about women's rights here. We're talking about the end of the world. So or you know, live all planet, let's say. Um, but also there are people who su- criticize the suffragettes for being um for their disruption and saying that that actually put the cause back with the civil rights movement there are still arguments about whether you know the, the disruptive pro- whether it's a disruptive protest that helped or whether it was going to happen anyway and there are historians writing on both sides so it's all quite inconclusive when you look back so i think his his thinking was that you know you talk to people sort of trying to get behind the psychology of it they don't really know what works they know that they've been ignored for decades. They know that they need to do something. Um, so they they do these protests that are disruptive. It doesn't always backfire. Um, there are others who write about how in the long, long term, you can see whether it's worked or not. Um, so you have to wait. Um, in the medium term, even, you look at, say, Insulate Britain, who were pariahs last year when they were blocking the roads. But now everything's been rethought for the energy crisis and people are thinking oh we should have listened to them actually in an even shorter term you've got you know phoebe the protester with the pink hair who's through the tomato soup on the painting she's now been she was on tiktok explaining herself very quite articulately i thought and now she's been spoke taken into television studios and she's being able to talk about 
the climate. So um, this is, you know, this is the sort of thing we discuss. It does have a, and it can have some kind of effect, but it's very much uncertain. Um, and another thing that he said was that actually, you know, the Extinction Rebellion founders think that if you go to prison, if enough people go into prison, then that could shift public dialogue. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. I mean, a lot of climate activists have been in prison. There are 15 um, scientists in prison in Munich at the moment for a sit-in at a BMW showroom um, to protest against mm. emissions in Germany. So um, it that doesn't necessarily work. Um, one thing we dis another thing we discussed was well, does does violence work? Is that the only way? Or you know, riots? Because I mean, if you look at the protests in the UK that that have the big marches and protests, you've got the march against Iraq, the Iraq War made no difference. It was massive, a really big countryside alliance march. Um, fox hunting was still banned, um, and yet you go back to the the um, the poll tax protests, and they're. There, there were riots. There was there was damage. People didn't pay their um, poll tax, and eventually, there was a back, government backtracked, and uh, Margaret Thatcher, in the long term, you know, she lost her job. So then you think, is that the only way? Violence or riots? I mean, I think, and I think our conclusion was that probably not, but it will probably happen. I mean, Colin Davis was predicting um, riots this winter about the cost of living, energy, and things. So, mm -hmm. and there will be there will be more climate terrorists. I mean, you know, but whether these get, do these get through to politicians? Not really. I mean, you know, it's um, over and over again, they've been warned. And then they do have a lot of, I mean, every activist I've spoken to say they've, they've been captured by the fossil fuel lobby. And, um, you know, if you think this trust worked for Shell, I think, and, you know, Resmog has investments in fossil fuels. There's, they're very big, powerful. So you can, you can see what they mean, especially if you watch any kind of recent, documentary on the sort of effect of fossil fuel companies on um, climate policy by muddying the water. I mean, these, these things were, you know, it's the 18, end of the 19th century that people, scientists started to work out that carbon dioxide, CO2 emissions heated the planet. They weren't necessarily sure at that time that it was damaging, but then it was, you know, middle of the 20th century, it was found to be damaging you had margaret thatcher talking about it during her reign i mean her leadership to say and um so it's something that's been known for such a long time how can people not act well their accusation is they're so um captured by the fossil fuel lobby that they're not going to change it could be other things of you know the short termism but um there's a rising sense of panic and that there will be damage and i mean i think um I can't remember which leader it was, um, but recently the leader of a country, a developing country, um, said that it will only change when there were mass deaths in the West. And that's probably unfortunately true. Gosh, well, that's a very um, <laughs> uplifting thought to sort of draw draw to a close on. Maybe I guess we'll have, have to have hope for Sunday and onwards and Maybe. see what, I, see what I comes think... of it all. I think I've been reading too many of these doomster reports, but it's very. I think you have seen, or at least I hope you have. But yeah, I mean, things are changing. Movement moves are being made, but I think the idea that um, you know people aren't working to prevent the worst, so it's possible that it's just going to be a a very changed world with a lot of people in you know, countries that are affected already. You know, you've got Pakistan, you've got you know, close to the Middle East, Africa. They're being affected. Island nations and. Um, that will lead to lots of 
lot of bad things, including an influx of refugees, which is, um, you know, <laughs> that's not also being dealt with very well. So it's no. quite quite dark. So um, let's hope that you know, the young young people are more energised. Um, I believe, and that's what uh, Caroline Lucas said. I mean, at the end of hers, maybe I'll finish on a sort of more positive note by uh, <laughs> by talking about the end of of her interview when she said, you know, it's the young generation. She said they fill me with hope. They're the ones who are going to live through the worst impacts of the climate the climate emergency, and they're determined to act while we have a chance. She says, you know, the huge amount of the Green Party's dynamism comes from young members and voters. And she mentions a new generation of inspired climate activists. And she says she's no doubt that this will only increase in the years ahead. So um, it's terrible to put this pressure on young people to say, yeah, we messed it up. You can deal with it. But I guess um, because they're more and more activists, I mean, you've got Rishi Sunak's daughters. Maybe maybe they're going to change the narrative. Maybe they're going to help. It's all in the hand of Rishi Sunak's daughters and and other young (laughs) people around them. Um, yeah, that's a much more much more positive note to um, end on than mass mass death and destruction. <laughs> but either way, some very very important issues at stake. Um, Suna, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast. That was a really really interesting interesting discussion. To read Suna's interview with Caroline Lucas and her other excellent features on our website, please visit theneweuropean.co.uk. And also a reminder that our latest edition, issue 315 of The New European, it's out in shops today and also available online. Thanks very much, Suna. Thank you. Thanks again to Suna for joining us there. To read more from Suna, her other pieces and all of our excellent writers, visit theneweuropean.co.uk. And now it's time for the Hall of Shame. It's the home for malignant ministers, bizarre backbenchers and putrid pundits alike. It's always a shame to break from tradition. So on that note, first up in the Hall of Shame this week is Anne Widdicombe. In her Daily Express column this week, she has some thoughts on the decadence we are now displaying here in the Wild West, to quote her, and explains that she is now trying to view our behaviour in the West through Muslim eyes. She writes... Young girls with plunging necklines and skirts up to heaven knows where fall off pavements on Friday nights as drunk as owls. On a family show such as Strictly Come Dancing, clothes can be gorgeous but are often more or less absent. Casual sex is rife. As once did Soviet Russia, eastern states now think the West decadent. We are. I'm just going to leave that there. Next up is Suella Braverman. She's been accused of using inflammatory language after describing the arrival of asylum seekers on England's southern coast as an invasion. I think it's fair to say she knew what she was doing by using such language, as in the last 24 hours or so, the discussion over her legitimacy in the role after she resigned over a security breach has been somewhat dimmed. If the Home Secretary is looking to truly know what an invasion looks like, I suggest she look further afield, perhaps in Ukraine. And finally, in the Hall of Shame is none other than Matt Hancock this week. As we've mentioned, the former health secretary's rebranding mission, he's moved on from turning up to podcast recording in sleek black polar necks and holding a Huel water bottle. And now he's moved on to reality TV. He's swapped the jungle of Westminster for the Australian jungle and is joining the cast of this year's I'm a Celebrity and has consequently lost the whip. As you can imagine, the news isn't really a week old and the memes are exquisite. He will report to Parliament what he's being paid for this at a later date, but one report suggests it is around the 400,000 mark. 
But he's not doing it for the money, you see. No, no, he's doing it to engage with voters. Writing in The Sun, the former cabinet minister said, So the truth is, I haven't lost my marbles or had one too many pina coladas. It's something I've given a lot of thought to. I was elected by the people and it's important to engage with voters, especially younger voters, no matter where they are and show them the human side of politics and politicians. In fact, he is already engaging with voters, just ones of a different kind. The British public are really expressing their enthusiasm to vote for Hancock to take part in Bush Bush Tucker trials. As I quoted Andy Drummond saying earlier, I'm looking forward to him eating a kangaroo's penis. I suppose the one truly comforting thing about British politics at the moment is that you never really know what sentences you're going to be uttering from one week to the next. That was the New European Podcast with Eleanor Longman-Rood. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our ace producer, John Dakin. A reminder of our special offer for new subscribers, if you go to the neweuropean.co.uk forward slash TNE podcast, you can join us for the great price of just £1 a week for digital or £2 a week for print and digital. That's the neweuropean.co.uk forward slash TNE podcast. If you don't want to miss an episode of the New European podcast, please subscribe. Oh, and give us nice ratings and lovely reviews. You can join our Facebook readers group or follow us on Twitter at the New European. Or you can even follow me on Twitter if you like at elongman_rude. Until next time we meet. So long, snowflakes. <laughs>